Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we will discuss the events surrounding the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-1, Turks and Ottomans. Before we get to the war itself, we must first discuss Bosnia's history before the war. This would include Bosnia's time as part of the Ottoman Empire, as part of the Austria-Hungary Kingdom, and as part of Yugoslavia. We will begin with the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans. Part 1 The Ottoman Conquest of the Balkans Who are the Turks? The people we now call the Turks most likely originated in the Altai Mountains in western Mongolia. But Turks are not Mongolian and belong to a different linguistic group. The Chinese called these nomadic people Tukiyu or Tuchue, and this is likely where the word Turk comes from. We discuss these proto-Turks in our series on the Umayyad dynasty. The Oguz, one of these early Turkish groups, eventually settled in the eastern provinces of the Umayyad Caliphate, primarily in Khorasan. Over time, the Oguz accepted Islam. Many of those Turks who did not want to live under Islamic law moved west to the Byzantine Empire. Another group of Turks, called the Karaknids, also accepted Islam. The Karaknids established a dynasty near the Tian Sha Mountains of Central Asia. They played a significant role in the spread of various Turkish-related languages in Transoxiana. In time, these Turkish languages replaced Persian as the dominant language in the area. At some point during the 9th century, a warlord named Seljuk broke off from the Karaknids. He created a new settlement near the Sirdaria River in what is now Kazakhstan. A hundred years later, these Seljuk Turks came down from the steppes of Central Asia and swept through Anatolia. They defeated the Byzantines in 1071 at the Battle of Manzikert. This victory established the Seljuks as the new power in eastern Anatolia. Meanwhile, the Byzantines went into a downward spiral and would eventually lose most of Anatolia to the Seljuks. The Seljuk Turks were not done. From their capital in Nishapur, Iran, they continued to spread, conquering much of what we now call Persia, Anatolia, the Caucasus, and Iraq. With the Seljuk conquests, Sunni Islam overtook Shia Islam as the primary faith in the region. Six years after the Battle of Manzikert, a Seljuk prince named Suleiman declared his independence from the empire. Prince Suleiman, a cousin of the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah, founded the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum would eventually face two of the greatest threats to Islam. The first threat came from Europe. The Byzantine Empire did not go away after the Battle of Manzikert. Though they were Orthodox Christians, the Byzantine emperor reached out to the Catholic pope based in Italy. 
He wanted help expelling the Turks from Anatolia and retaking the land for Christianity. The Pope responded by putting out a call to his followers to take up the cross and free Anatolia and Jerusalem from the infidels. The Pope's message was heard loud and clear. Waves of Christian warriors poured across the Bosporus Strait into Anatolia. Most of these warriors came from France, but many were also from Italy, England, Germany, and Spain. The Muslims at the time called them Franks, but we now call them Crusaders. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum was too busy fighting the original Seljuks and were overwhelmed by the Crusaders. The Crusaders captured large swaths of territory in Anatolia before moving south into Syria and Palestine. It would be nearly 90 years before the Muslims expelled most of the Crusaders from the Middle East. We discussed the story of the Crusades in our series on the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. By now, crusading was losing its appeal as European monarchs chose to focus on things closer to home. This change in attitude allowed the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum to recover and start expanding again. In 1176, the Byzantines made one last desperate attempt to regain their lost territory in Anatolia at the Battle of Myriokephalon. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum thrashed the Byzantines who would never again threaten the Muslims in Anatolia. All the Byzantines had left in Anatolia were a few forts along the coast. Over the next 30 years, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum became the dominant force in Anatolia. They played a key role in international trade, dominating the famous global network known as the Silk Road. We mentioned earlier how the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum faced two major challenges. The Crusaders were actually the lesser of these two challenges. Their biggest challenge came from a land far to the east. In the 13th century, the Mongols arrived. By the time the Mongols arrived in Anatolia, they had already captured much of Iran, Georgia, and southern Russia. Frightened survivors fled to the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, bringing horrifying stories of brutal, unstoppable warriors on horseback who destroyed everything in their path. Before long, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum faced off with the Mongols. Their armies clashed at the Battle of Kos Dag in 1242, and the Mongols came away with the victory. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum had no choice but to submit and become a vassal of the Mongols. And so they would remain for the rest of their existence. With the Mongols controlling them, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum slowly disintegrated. The once proud state that had stood against the Crusaders and beaten the Byzantines crumbled into a bunch of small, independent territories called Baliks. Osman Ghazi There are a lot of stories describing the origins of the Ottomans. However, most of them are more legend than reality, and it is currently impossible to know the truth. But we'll go with one of the most popular origin stories, which seems to be the most credible. Suleiman Shah was the chief of the Qayyi clan, who were Ogu's Turks. 
Suleiman and his clan had fled the Mongols when they invaded Turkmenistan. After several months of wandering, they made their way first to northern Iraq and then to Syria. Suleiman Shah died while on this journey, leaving his three adult sons to lead the clan. Unfortunately, the brothers disagreed on what to do next as Syria was still being fought over by the Mongols and the Mamluks. Two of the three brothers wound up taking positions within the Mongol regime. The third brother, named Erturul Ghazi, took on the leadership of his clan. Erturul led his people north into Anatolia, eventually settling on the plains near modern-day Ankara. Erturul and the Koyi clan expanded their territory to include Eski-Shahir and Sogut to the west. Erturul died in 1281, and his son, Osman Ghazi, became the new leader of the clan. Osman is the Turkish pronunciation of the Arabic word Othman. Osman's family and descendants would become known as the Osmanli dynasty, and the Beylik he and his family ruled over became known as the Osmanli Beylik. The Osmanli Beylik sat right next to the Byzantine Empire's remaining territory in western Anatolia. And the Osmanli Beylik continued to creep westwards, slowly growing at the Byzantines' expense. Despite their small size, the Osmanlis never had trouble finding soldiers for their raids. With so many competing Beyliks and former Byzantine cities in Anatolia, there was no shortage of warriors willing to kill and be killed for the right price. The Osmanlis preferred to hire Muslim warriors, or Ghazis as they were known. But they did not mind hiring Christian warriors when necessary. Throughout the 1300s, the Osmanli Bailey continued to grow, swallowing up weaker Baileks as they did. One of these was the Karasi Baileck. The Karasis were master shipbuilders and used their skills to raid Byzantine coastal fortresses. When the Osmanlis conquered the Karasis, they gained their knowledge of the sea and their fleet of ships. It wasn't long before the Ottomans crossed the Dardanelles and invaded Gallipoli. The Latin Empire of Constantinople Pope Innocent III was one of the most powerful pontiffs in history. He ran Europe like his own little kingdom, deposed kings at will, and wiped out heretics without a second thought but he could not stand the fact that Jerusalem was back in the hands of the Muslims. A century earlier, the warriors of the First Crusade had torn through Anatolia and the Middle East before taking Jerusalem by force and sword. But despite these impressive conquests, the Crusaders soon began losing territory to the Muslims. First, they lost the county of Edessa to Imaduddin Zengi in 1144. This led Pope Eugene III to call for a second crusade. Thousands of Europeans responded to the second crusade, but most of them never set foot in Edessa. Instead, they attacked Damascus, nearly 300 miles to the south, where they were soundly defeated. 
Four decades later, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi destroyed another crusader state, this time the Kingdom of Jerusalem. In response, Pope Gregory VIII called a third crusade to retake the Holy Land. Several powerful Christian monarchs participated in the Third Crusade. These included King Richard the Lionheart of England, King Philip II of France, and Emperor Frederick Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire. The Third Crusade, launched in 1189, was almost successful. Richard the Lionheart pushed Salahuddin's hold on Jerusalem to the very limits. But Salahuddin held on, and Jerusalem remained in Muslim hands. Now, 15 years after Salahuddin's death, Pope Innocent III was upset. After the failure of the Third Crusade, Christian Europe seemed to lose interest in crusading. They no longer wanted to spend their fortunes and risk their lives on a dangerous journey to fight in foreign lands hundreds of miles away. Pope Innocent III believed the Crusaders' failure in Jerusalem was God's punishment for the sins of Christian Europe. He believed God would return Jerusalem to the Christians if they repented, corrected their behavior, and supported the church. In August 1198, Pope Innocent III issued a call for a new crusade to retake Jerusalem. He hoped to reposition Rome as the center of Europe's crusading efforts. However, this fourth crusade got off to a rocky start. First of all, relatively few professional warriors volunteered for the crusade. A few knights and nobles took the oath of the cross, but none of the prominent European monarchs did. Instead, Thousands of poverty-stricken peasants joined, hoping to change their fortune in this new crusade. With none of the wealthy kings participating, the crusade was also short of funds. The few nobles who joined the crusade had to purchase ships on credit from the Venetians. And since the crusaders were now in their debt, the Venetians decided to put them to good use. Enrico Dandolo, Patriarch of Grado in Italy and the de facto ruler of Venice wanted the Crusaders to deal with one of his rivals. In return, he promised to forgive a portion of their debt. The Crusaders agreed, besieging and sacking the city of Zara on the Croatian coast. But Zara was a predominantly Catholic city and Pope Innocent III was furious when he found out what they did. The Pope excommunicated them, though he would later forgive the French Crusaders. He did not forgive the Venetians. The Crusaders' plunder of Zara was not enough for Enrico Dandolo. He approached the Crusaders with yet another proposal. In 1195, Byzantine Emperor Isaac II Angelos was overthrown, blinded, and imprisoned by his brother. This revolt was supported by a group of Greek merchants who were also rivals of Enrico Dandolo. Dandolo sent the crusaders to attack Constantinople and install Isaac's son, Alexius Angelos, to the throne. And the crusaders did just that. By 1203, the usurper was gone and Alexius became the new emperor. 
But then, Emperor Alexius had trouble paying the Crusaders what he promised. The young emperor did everything in his power to find enough gold to pay them. He raised taxes, confiscated private property, and melted down priceless works of art. But it still was not enough. All his efforts did was turn the people of Constantinople against him, which wasn't difficult since many saw him as a Catholic puppet. The crusaders stood by as Constantinople rose up against Emperor Alexius and threw him into prison. A few days later, Alexius was found dead in his cell, strangled to death. But now, the crusaders were in a difficult spot. Emperor Alexius had been their best chance to get the money to repay the Venetians. And the new Byzantine emperor refused to give them anything. So, the crusaders decided to overthrow the new guy and take Constantinople for themselves. In 1204, just a few months after Alexios was killed, the crusaders attacked Constantinople for the second time in less than a year. This time, they were thorough, brutally plundering the city for three straight days. Most of the warriors from the Fourth Crusade never made it to Jerusalem. Instead, they captured the Byzantine throne and established the Latin Empire of Constantinople. The Byzantine Comeback As mentioned earlier, the Byzantine Empire had been in a state of decline for centuries. This era, which included the Fourth Crusade and the Latin Empire of Constantinople, further accelerated that decline. The new crusader-controlled, Venice-funded, Latin Empire of Constantinople was in turmoil from the very beginning. They were surrounded by enemies on all sides. The Greek-speaking Byzantines who had ruled the empire for centuries fled to Nicaea in Anatolia, establishing a government in exile. Immediately, they began plotting their revenge. To the north of Constantinople was the Bulgarian Empire, which did not care for these usurpers from Western Europe. And there were several smaller Greek states, many of them former Byzantine vassals who refused to recognize the Crusaders' rule over Constantinople. In 1205, the year following Constantinople's conquest, the Bulgarians defeated the Latin Crusaders at the Battle of Adrianople. The Latin Crusaders struck back, defeating the Bulgarians in 1208 at the Battle of Philippopolis. This was just the beginning. The Latin Crusaders of Constantinople were constantly at war with their neighbors. This continuous fighting took its toll. The Latin Empire of Constantinople had very few allies. They had the Venetians, but their help always came at a steep price. The Venetians even once demanded the Latin emperor give them his son as collateral for a loan. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Empire in exile was growing stronger and more confident. In 1259, they defeated an enemy alliance at the Battle of Pelagonia, gaining control over most of the territory surrounding Constantinople. They placed the city under siege until it fell two years later. The Byzantines and the Turks 
Even after retaking Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire remained very small. It was even smaller than before the Fourth Crusade. The Byzantine Empire, if it could still be called an empire, consisted of Constantinople, some parts of Thrace, a few islands in the Aegean Sea, and the northwestern parts of Anatolia. Their small empire meant the Byzantines also had a small military. For this reason, they focused on defense, utilizing fortresses and fortifications to defend their holdings. Because they were so small, the Byzantines had to minimize their losses. They began experimenting with new weapons like the crossbow. The crossbow did not take much skill and could be used with deadly efficiency even by novices. The Byzantines also began adopting some of the weapons, armor, and military tactics of the Western Europeans. Curiously, they never bothered to adopt the heavy cavalry charge the Crusaders were famous for. When larger numbers were required, the Byzantines hired mercenaries. They even used Turkish mercenaries who were excellent horse archers. And when their interests aligned, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum even loaned troops to the Byzantines to fight against their mutual enemies. When this happened, it was not uncommon for the Turkish troops to stay with the Byzantines. There are reports of entire Turkish tribes abandoning the Seljuks and permanently joining the Byzantine Empire. Nonetheless, the Byzantine Empire was still shrinking. They seemed to have lost all interest in Anatolia and focused on the European side of the Bosporus Strait. What little territory the Byzantines still held in Anatolia was populated by small landowners called Akratoi. Many of these Akratoi lived along the dangerous border where the Byzantine Empire ended and the Turkish Beyliks began. With the Byzantines focused so much on Greece and the Balkans, the Akratoi were abandoned to deal with the Turks on their own. More often than not, the Akratoi had no choice but to pledge fealty to one or another of the Turkish Beyliks in Anatolia. The Ottomans arrive in Europe. As mentioned earlier, the Byzantines and their various Greek factions had been hiring Turkish mercenaries for years. John Cantacuzinos, also known as John VI, hired thousands of Serbian and Turkish mercenaries in 1341. At the same time, John VI was fighting to take the Byzantine throne from his rival, John V. John VI stationed many of his Turkish mercenaries in forts along the Gallipoli Peninsula. He even allowed these mercenaries to conduct raids into Greece and Anatolia so long as they steered clear of Byzantine territory. These Turkish mercenaries were from the Aydin Beylik. The Aydin Turks were fairly strong until their leader died. After that, they diminished and either merged with other Beyliks or were conquered by them. Hence, when John VI found himself in trouble again in 1347, he had to find a different group of Turks to hire. This time, he turned to the Osmanli Beylik who had taken over much of the lands from the Aydin Turks. Osman had died in 1323, and his son, Orhan, was the new Osmanli sultan. 
Orhan led 5,500 troops on behalf of John VI through the Dardanelles and into Thrace. There, they defeated all of John VI's enemies from the Black Sea to Constantinople, allowing him to ascend the Byzantine throne. Nonetheless, John VI continued to face challenges to his authority, and he continued to call on the Osmanli Turks for assistance. This bond between John VI and the Osmanli Turks grew very strong. John VI married his daughter to Orhan. Meanwhile, Orhan's son, Suleiman, attacked those regions in Thrace that continued to resist John's authority. When the Serbs briefly captured Thessalonica in Greece, Suleiman retook it for John VI. Emperor John VI was so grateful to the Osmanlis, he allowed Orhan's troops to garrison in his fort at Gallipoli in 1352. Now the Osmanlis were close by in case he ever needed them on short notice. The Osmanlis took full advantage of this new European home. Suleiman led raids throughout Gallipoli, not concerned in the least that he was raiding Byzantine territory. When John VI complained to Suleiman's father, Orhan apologized profusely. However, he could not return the lands his impetuous son had captured. Orhan tried to explain how Islamic law forbade him from returning land that had been taken from non-Muslims. Things continued to go bad for John VI. In 1354, a severe earthquake struck Gallipoli, destroying much of the Byzantine defensive fortifications in the region. For some reason, Suleiman interpreted this tragedy as a sign from Allah that the Osmanlis had to stay in Gallipoli. The Osmanlis consolidated their territory in Gallipoli and used it as a base to launch more raids into Europe. To Emperor John VI's horror, the Ottomans continued to raid, pushing deeper into Thrace. Before long, they had captured Kordulu, Tekirda, Lulubergaz, and Malkara in what is now the European part of modern Turkey. Emperor John VI finally realized the danger he was in. His former Osmanli allies were steadily taking the land surrounding Constantinople. Desperate, he turned to his former enemies, the Bulgarians and the Serbs, for help against the Osmanlis. But time had run out for Emperor John VI. His rival, John V, forced him off the throne in 1354 and confined him to a monastery for the rest of his life. The new Byzantine emperor was also powerless to stop the Osmanlis. Orhan's troops surrounded Constantinople, putting it under siege and refusing to allow food to pass through. Orhan demanded Emperor John V recognize Ottoman sovereignty over the European lands they'd recently conquered. Eventually, the emperor capitulated and accepted Orhan's terms. The news of this humbling experience sent shockwaves through Europe. The idea of a Muslim force conquering European lands was frightening. Many Western Europeans called for a new crusade against the Ottomans. But after the debacle of the Fourth Crusade, not many people were interested. 
they put the idea of another crusade aside for the time being. Orhan's delight at his recent victories were soon cut short. His brave son, Suleiman, was killed in a riding accident in 1357. Orhan went into a deep depression from which he never recovered. He died two years later. In 1362, Orhan's second son, Murad, became the new Osmanli ruler. In later years, the Russians called it Osmanskaya Imperia. The Germans called it Das Osmanisch Reich. In Arabic, it would be known as Adulatul Osmania. And in English, the empire that grew from the Osmanli Beylik would be known as the Ottoman Empire. In the next episode, we'll discuss the Serbian Empire and the 1389 Battle of Kosovo. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. The Islamic Vibes Podcast is a weekly podcast brought to you by Islamic activist and history enthusiast Majid Hussein, a.k.a. at Muslim Podcaster. His What's Happening Muslims show is an unscripted and casual chat with fellow brothers about the current issues which every Muslim needs to know. While his Just Thinking show is a thought-providing discussion with esteemed and expert guests on specific Islamic topics. Brother Majid interviewed me on episode 19 of the Islamic Vibes podcast and I highly encourage you to go listen to it. The Islamic Vibes podcast, keeping those vibes Islamic. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the very first episode of the Umayyad Caliphate. This is a series about the Umayyad Caliphate presented by the Islamic History Podcast and exclusively for premium subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. To get this series, you must be subscribed to Islamic History Exclusive either on Patreon or through IslamicHistoryExclusive.com. In this series, we are going to discuss the Umayyad Caliphate from its beginning just after the defeat of Ibn Zubair 
in the Second Muslim Civil War to its ultimate end and its overthrow by what became the Abbasid Caliphate, inshallah. But before we get into discussing the Umayyad Caliphate, let's first discuss the state of the Muslim world and the state of the Islamic Caliphate thus far. The Islamic Caliphate really begins with Abu Bakr when he became the leader of the Muslim world after Prophet Muhammad died. Upon becoming the Khalifa of the Muslim world, several tribes who had previously been allied to Prophet Muhammad rebelled against Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr, together with Khalid ibn Walid, the famous Muslim general, defeated the rebels, reuniting most of Arabia under Islam. These wars between Abu Bakr and these rebels were called the Ridda Wars. After they were over, Abu Bakr instructed Khalid ibn Walid to invade Persia. Khalid ibn Walid was successful in his initial invasion of Persia, capturing much of what is now southern Iraq. At around the same time, Abu Bakr also sent another companion named Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah to invade Syria. Abu Ubaidah, however, was not as successful as Khalid ibn Walid had been in Iraq. So Abu Bakr sent Khalid ibn Walid from Persia to assist with the invasion of Syria. Abu Bakr died soon after that, however, after being caliph for about two years. He was succeeded by another famous companion, Omar ibn al-Khattab. Umar dismissed Khalid ibn Walid as the overall general of the Muslim armies. However, Khalid ibn Walid remained a part of the Muslim military force. The invasions into Syria and Persia continued, and as far as Syria is concerned, the Muslims captured all the way up to Anatolia. Over in Persia, the Persian Empire under the Sassanid dynasty was completely destroyed by the Arab by the Arab Muslim armies. So now the Muslims controlled all of Arabia, most of what is now Iraq and much of Iran, and also much of Syria up until the southern borders of Anatolia. Ahmed ibn As, another companion, requested and received permission from the Caliph Omar, Omar ibn Khattab to lead an invasion into Egypt. Omar goes into Egypt and captures Egypt up to Alexandria and establishes the foundation of Fustat, which would later become the city we now know as Cairo. Omar ibn Khattab, after roughly 10 years of rule, Omar was assassinated by a disgruntled Persian slave. Omar was then succeeded by another companion, Uthman ibn Affan, from the Umayyad clan. The first six years of Uthman's reign were fairly peaceful, but then things started to turn bad in the final six years. The Muslim conquests slowed down, decreasing the influx of wealth into the caliphate and into the Muslim world. With less wealth and less movement, some of the old tribal rivalries began to fester, particularly in the new Muslim cities in Iraq, such as Kufa and Basra. 
And there was a growing resentment against Othman ibn Affan, and many people were upset with him for various reasons. Many people accused him of nepotism, some people were upset with him for standardizing the Qur'an, and many people thought the division of wealth in these new Muslim conquests were not being done fairly. 